0: I want to start this message by telling you about a time quite a while ago when I was snowboarding at Mammoth Mountain. Uh, it was snowing a lot and we were experiencing whiteouts, which simply means you couldn't see beyond a couple yards in front of you. It'd be like driving in uh, dense fog. Uh, it was dangerous to ride off the groomed trails. Uh, whiteouts are not the time when you want to ride through the trees for obvious reasons. Uh, Well, I ended up off the trail without realizing it and fell in an area of deep powder by a tree, and I was stuck. That's where a member of Ski Patrol found me. And he asked me if I needed help, and I said, no, I'm okay, I don't need anyone to rescue me. Uh, I had been snowboarding for a lot of years, I knew what I was doing. Uh, But I was stuck in deep powder and I couldn't move. And so he said, well, I don't want to take a chance and leave you here, so he helped me back to the trail. And as he was helping me, it struck me that I might not actually be the best judge of whether or not I need to be rescued. Uh, I might actually need to be rescued, and I don't know that I need to be rescued. My pride might actually kind of get in the way. Well, I want to walk to, I want to talk today on Christmas Eve about how Jesus comes to rescue people, uh, but sometimes people think they don't need it. Francis Collins is the head of the National Institute of Health Uh, Before that, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. Uh, He's one of the most brilliant scientists in the world. Uh, He talks about how he got a PhD in science, and then after that, he got an MD because he wanted to be helpful. Um, He didn't believe in God. Uh, He was a total skeptic. Uh, He would talk to elderly people in the rural South, uh, not nearly as educated as him, uh, but they had kind of a peace. They were able to face suffering and... And they had a hope that he didn't have. And he said, one of, the, one of them asked one time, Dr. Collins, uh, what happens to you after you die? And he said he realized he really didn't have a clue. He thought he knew. Uh, he just dismissed the whole God and faith thing. Uh, but he never really considered it. And so he began to study. And that led him to read the Bible and a bunch of books by a guy named C.S. Lewis And he became convinced that there is a God and that that God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus, and that he needed God's grace and God changed his life. And so I want to talk to you today, Christmas Eve, 2019, about how Jesus can change your life and then give you a chance to be rescued. That's all this message is about. It's rooted in a real important statement in the Bible. Uh, This is from the Apostle Paul. For it is by grace you have been saved or rescued through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Being rescued is God's great gift to us at Christmas. It's the best gift that we could ever receive. Uh, Have you ever played the game with a little kid, or maybe you remember someone playing it with you, where you have a piece of candy or a coin? in one hand, and you put both hands behind your back, and then you bring them around, and you say, all right, pick which one. It's kind of a simple game. It's not meant to be a mean game. Uh, You don't play that game with a child and have nothing in your hands, and then after three or four times say, see, life is full of disappointments. (laughs) Sometimes we get the idea that God is playing that kind of game with us. Uh, We may not get it on the first choice, but God's intention is to give his children good gifts. This is what James said about our great gift-giving God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. That means every gift you get, every gift you receive this Christmas is from God. It may say Santa on the package, but it's from above. And the ultimate gift is that Jesus has come to rescue us. We have a bunch of ladders on campus. Um, someone asked if we're a Church of the Latter-day Saints. Um, <laughs> And I want to basically talk about two different ways to do your life, uh, two different ways to save your life. One of them is the way of performance, and Paul talks about this as works. And the other way is the way of grace. These are two ways that you can save, try to save your life. And by the way, we're all trying to save our lives. Um, that word save has become such a cliche that it's lost a lot of its meaning. Uh, but in the Bible, it's generally used either to mean to be healed, uh, to be delivered, or to be rescued. And I need that. I need to be healed from my aloneness. I need to be healed of my guilt and my regrets. I need to be uh, healed of my fear of death and my fear that this life doesn't have any meaning, that there's no purpose to it. Uh, We all need that. One of the most common ways we try to save our lives is to say, I'm going to prove my existence by climbing this ladder of success or this ladder of impressing other people. You see, works is the ladder I climb up. There's a fabulous line from a movie some of you may have seen years ago called Chariots of Fire. Uh, One of the characters in the movie is a sprinter, and he's driven. Uh, He's haunted by his need to be successful. Uh, He talks about going to the Olympics and why it is that he lives with such a weight on his shoulders. This is what he said. When the gun goes off, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. What if you don't win the race? I mean, even if you do win the race, that wears off. It always wears off. There's this strange thing. We're all trying to climb these ladders, yet our egos are insatiable. No matter what we do, it can't last. And we give our kids little ladders and we tell them, keep climbing higher, keep doing more. We're trying to justify ourselves. We try to make our egos feel satisfied with our lives. It's real interesting, there was, a, there was research that was done on this question. Do you consider yourself to be a very important person? And that's part of our lives. That's part of trying to save our lives. In 1950, 12% of everyone in America consider themselves to be a very important person. Now, just turn to the person next to you and take a quick guess. Um, Do you think that number went up or down by the year 2000, and by how much? Just tell the person next to you. Take a quick guess. The correct answer is that by the year 2000, 80% of us believed we were very important people. And we want our kids to be. And so we give them little ladders. Climb up the ladder, get good grades, study hard, get into a good school, make mom and dad proud. It's just in the atmosphere, and it's crushing them. You know, in 1966, 19% of all high school students had a GPA of A or A-. 19%. By 2019, it's 47%. It's well more than double. It's up by 150%. But is the happiness of students up 150%? No. I feel like a failure, but I can't let anyone see. I'm afraid of being rejected, but I can't let anyone know I'm afraid. I feel so tired, but I can't tell anyone. We'll end up putting a number of things on top of that ladder and trying to climb to it. We'll put our success, we'll put our well being we'll put our ego, our comfort, some relationship. Whatever I put there, that's what I devote my life to, and I become enslaved by whatever I put on top of that ladder. That's where all kinds of addictions come from and all kinds of problems come from. Well, the writers of Scripture have a diagnosis of the human condition. Our real problem is what they call sin, and that's another word that has largely lost its meaning in our day. Now, The idea of sin is not that you've broken some rule or that you've done something that, for some weird reason, Some religious system says you shouldn't do. Sin is putting the wrong thing on top of the ladder. Tim Keller puts it like this. Sin is taking a good thing, being successful or a relationship or whatever, and making it the ultimate thing. It will destroy me, yet I become enslaved to it. One of the problems with sin is it gets inside of me, and I'm not even aware that it's inside of me. It makes me mess stuff up, and I don't even know that it's there. A little over 10 years ago, I was doing student ministry at a church in San Diego, and I had a team that I would meet with monthly to plan out the high school services, and one time we were watching a service, we were critiquing it, and when we got to the message, I noticed that I shook my hand to adjust my watch, Um, and I didn't even know I was doing it. I didn't even know how distracting it was. Someone on the team said, you do that all the time. I thought that was like a tick disorder or something. And I had been teaching at this church for six years. Like no one said anything about it because they thought it was a tick and they might offend me. I was distracting people with something that I didn't even have a clue about. And that's part of the the dynamic of sin. When it happens to me, I'm likely to not even know it. In some ways, you know, some stuff I know and I feel real guilty about it, but in other ways... There is arrogance and pride and greed and self-centeredness and deception that's inside of me, and I don't even know it. The psalmist puts it like this, but who can discern their own errors, forgive my hidden faults? Only God knows. One of the weird parts about sin is I'll be very aware of yours, uh, but I'm not aware that I have a problem. An old story, it's kind of goofy, but it illustrates this. I have a dream. And in this dream, I go to heaven, and there are all kinds of hallways through heaven, and there are walls all over heaven that are filled with what looks like clocks. And underneath all of these clocks is the name of a human being on earth. And I ask St. Peter about it, and he says, Those are actually sinometers. Everyone has one. Every time you sin, your sinometer gives a little tick. And then I walk around looking for everyone's sinometer. You know, there's Joe Hartley, our executive pastor and after 30 seconds, you he, you, hear, you see this tick, and then after 20 seconds, another tick, and I'm kind of surprised, and then there's Scott House, it's like 10 seconds, tick, 5 seconds, tick, and then there's my wife's centimeter, and it's going like tick, 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 and I'm kind of disturbed by that. All of you people, it's like everyone has a centimeter, and I find everyone's centimeter except mine. And I can't find one for me, and I'm quite excited about this. And so I go to St. Peter, and I say, does this mean what I think it means? Does this mean I'm not sinning anymore? And he said, are you kidding? They keep yours in the office. They use it as a fan. (laughs) Who can discern their hidden faults? It's easy to see in other people. You see, sin is not breaking rules. It's putting the wrong thing on top of the ladder. It's climbing the wrong ladder. It's this irreversible, inevitable, unconquerable, very often it is discernible to me, tendency to foul life up for me or for someone else. And every once in a while, I get a glimpse of it. I was thinking about a time when I was in high school and I wanted to climb the ladder, I wanted to get really good grades, and I was taking a test, and this wasn't the first time that this happened for me, but there was a girl sitting next to me and she was real smart, and so I looked over at her paper to see how she answered a question. Only this time, the teacher saw me and asked me to stay after class. And I was so ashamed because I was supposed to be a Christian that when she told me about this, what I actually said was, well, I don't think it made the grade I got on my test any better. I mean, I couldn't say, yeah, that's me. I did it. I'm a cheater. I was thinking about a time I was playing in a beach volleyball tournament, and we had a judge making calls at the middle of the court by the net. Uh, He wasn't calling the balls in or out, but he was there to arbitrate if there was any dispute. And the team we were playing hit a ball that was just inside the back line, but my body was blocking it so that no one could see it, and so I called it out, and no one disputed it. But later after the game, when I saw the judge, he looked at me, and I could tell he knew. And that was a lot of years ago, and I still remember that. I still remember the shame that I felt. And I'll tell you what I don't remember. I don't remember how many other times I lied or cheated and no one noticed. And then I think there is a God, a holy, perfect God, and I'm going to stand before him one day, and he knows it all. That's the reality of who I am. That's the reality of who you are. That's who we are. This is our problem. One of the human tendencies is to think, well, I can handle that. I can take care of that. But Paul talks about the idea that we are not saved by works. In Paul's day, a lot of people, for a lot of people, the latter was kind of a religious one. Uh, Even in our day, a lot of people think whether or not we even believe in God, there are good people and there are bad people, but I'm one of the good people. How do you know? Like, well, I go to church sometimes. Well, I, I read the Bible sometimes. I give money sometimes. Like, I'm not as bad as someone else and I'll compare myself to someone else who is worse than me, Uh, they're the real bad ones. And I'm doing okay. You know, I've climbed the ladder high enough. I'm okay. It's very interesting. Uh, I was reading a couple weeks ago, uh, another thing a lot of people do, a lot of people in the Bay Area is to say, well, I am a good person because I embrace the right ideology. I'm opposed to intolerance. I'm opposed to bigotry. I'm opposed to militarism. I'm opposed to injustice. I'm opposed to corporate greed. You know, there are bad people who aren't. It doesn't change the tendency I have to foul things up. A lot of people in the Bay Area believe technology is going to save the human race. That we're just going to get smart enough and clever enough and have enough apps that there's going to be more and more education and more and more affluence and more and more opportunity. But I'll tell you something. No one yet has invented an app that will correct the human heart from the tendency to foul up, lie, cheat, deceive, be greedy, or betray. There is no app for that one. And into all of this, into the mess, the darkness that is my life and yours, comes Jesus, and he brings grace. Let's talk about grace now. This is not works. This is not saving yourself. This is not being good enough. This is not pretending like there is not a sin issue. Grace is not a ladder I climb up. Grace is the ladder that Jesus climbed down. Jesus says, now the offer of being forgiven of all of your sin and being given a new start and having a purpose in life and a hope beyond death comes to you as a free gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Jesus would tell all kinds of stories about this. One of them is found a number of times in the Bible, and this is kind of an account of it uh, from a book I love by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace? Uh, This is what Yancey writes. One of Jesus' stories about grace made it into three different gospels in slightly different versions. Uh, My favorite version though appeared in another source entirely. The Boston Globe's account in June 1990 of a most unusual wedding reception. Accompanied by her fiance, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, pointed to pictures of flower arrangements they liked. They both had expensive tastes and the bill came to $13,000. So that's 30 years ago, so it would be like forty or $50,000 today. After leaving a check for half of the amount as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through the book of wedding invitations. The day the invitations were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this for a little while longer. When his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the reception, the event's manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. About the refund though, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. You have two options, forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the reception. I'm sorry, I really am. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Uh, Not a wedding reception, mind you, but a big party. 10 years before that, the same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. So it was in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston had a party they had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said, <laughs> and sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. In that warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-eaten pizza off cardboard boxes dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off the hard life on the sidewalk outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band tunes late into the night. You see, Jesus would tell stories like this about how the kingdom of God is like this banquet. And people who have not earned it, who have not climbed the ladder, they're going to be there. Why? It's just because of grace. You cannot, by all of your achievements or by all of your good works or by however many people you compare yourself with, you will never be able to justify your existence. But you know what? You don't have to. That's grace. Paul put it like this. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Now we're told that the primary vehicle, the primary expression of the grace of God through Jesus comes not when we climb the ladder, but when Jesus goes to the cross. And people wonder about that sometimes. Like, what is the cross thing about? And I'm going to talk about two dynamics of that that you might want to think about. There's a horizontal beam and a vertical beam. The vertical beam reminds me that I have a relationship with God. And one of the things the writers of Scripture say is that because I'm a sinner, uh, I'm a cheater, a liar, and a gossip, I have a kind of debt with God. The writer of Scripture says, the wages of sin is death. It just leads to death. I can't pay that. I was at a Starbucks recently, and I had ordered a chai latte. And then when I went to pay for it, I realized I didn't have my credit card. And I said to the person behind the counter, I'm so sorry. I left my credit card at home. Uh, I'm a pastor. I promise you I will come back and pay for it. And they said, it's okay. Actually, you don't have to pay for it. This one's on the house. Isn't that a great expression? This one's on the house. Now, that didn't mean that it was free. Like, it was free for me, but someone was going to have to pay for it. Who would have to pay for it? Starbucks. They would pay for it. They would have to pay for the tea. They would have to pay for the labor. Starbucks Starbucks was gonna do that for no reason at all. Uh, They didn't get anything out of it at all, except this wonderful uh, promotional story that I'm telling hundreds of people at Christmas. But other than that, they didn't get anything out of it at all. Imagine I would have gone back there the next day and gotten a drink and said, you know what, I can't pay for this one. And then the next day, every day for a year, that would be 365 drinks. Every day for a decade, that'd be 3,650. Now let's think about sin here for a moment. Again, I understand it's kind of countercultural. A lot of people don't like to think about this, but let's talk about this. Let's think about this. It's reality. Every once in a while, when the spotlight shines on us, when we get caught, we recognize it. What does your sinometer look like? Like, how often is that bad boy ticking? A psychologist named William Backus, he cites one study that says the average American practices deceit in one way or another. So body language, outright lies. The average American practices deception 300 times a day. There's actually 200. I just want to show you how easy it was to lie. (laughs) Uh, And that's just one dimension of sin. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is. Let's say that it's way overblown. So let's just give you a break. Uh, Let's say you sin just 10 times a day. I mean, that's probably a conservative estimate. I mean, that would be 3,650 sins in a year. That'd be 36,500 in a decade. Let's say you live to be 70 years old. Let's just cut you some slack for the first 10 years, like the age of accountability. So like 60 years. Um, And that's over 200,000 sins when I stand before God. And the reality is it's worse than that because sins are not just particular acts I do, they just get inside of me like a disease, like a die, and they just mess everything up. But how am I going to stand before a holy, perfect, righteous God with 200,000 sins? You see, that vertical beam on the cross means I owe a debt that I cannot pay, and Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. The wages of sin is death, and he took my place He paid the price in a way that I will never fully understand. That's the vertical dimension of the cross. He paid a debt that I could not, that I owed to God for my sin. Then there's the horizontal beam. And you might just think about the arms of Jesus and his love. In the cross, we see the ultimate expression of God's love for the human race. And the stories we love more than any other are stories of sacrificial love where someone loves another person enough to suffer for him. We can never get enough of these stories. And I wanna show you a picture of this kind of grace from a scene in the movie Les Mis. Uh, This is a story of a peasant, Jean Valjean, who is sentenced to hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. Uh, He's released from jail and is offered to stay in the home of a priest. And despite being treated with dignity for the first time in years, Valjean steals the priest's valuable silverware and to make matters worse, Valjean is caught in the act, but he escapes by beating the priest. And the rest of this scene is a great picture of grace. Check this out. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want
1: to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed (laughs) that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you.
0: See, Jean Valjean was saved by grace, and that's the cross. He paid a debt I could not pay. He died a death that I could not die for love. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now I want to ask you, everyone in this room, we're saved by grace through faith. And the ultimate question in your life, the ultimate decision is: have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you received grace? Receiving grace is real different than receiving honors. Uh, I know we live in a society where everyone is trying to climb the ladder. We all want to win honors. At commencement time, if you look at a book of graduates, there will be certain names that have a little asterisk next to them. It'll mean they graduated with honors, cum laude. And I was talking to a guy in the Bay Area not too long ago, and he said that he had a real hard life. He dropped out, got addicted, messed up everything, and then he met Jesus, and he got saved, and he was healed of his addiction. And his marriage got healed, and he got hope, and he had purpose in his life. And he said, the only school I went to was the School of Hard Knocks. You know that school? That's the only school I went to. And I didn't graduate cum laude or magna cum laude or sumna cum laude. I graduated thank you laude. No one's going to, to get to heaven cum laude. No one's going to get to heaven sumna cum laude. Just thank you, Lord. Christmas really comes down to this question. This is why we're here in church. This is the most important reason we're here, to help people meet Jesus and to be rescued from this tendency I have to foul things up, to to betray my most important values that have separated me from God. And I have to tell you, the writers of scripture are very clear about this. You cannot be good enough. You cannot try hard enough. You cannot climb high enough You cannot compare yourself to enough other people. You can't give enough. You can't attend church enough. But you can humble yourself and you can ask. And my question now is, are you willing to say, I'm going to get off the ladder of whatever it is that I've been trying to climb. I'm going to say no to whatever idol or to whatever it is that I've been putting on top of that ladder. I'm going to come to the cross and I'm going to acknowledge I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to ask God through Jesus to forgive me and to become the leader of my life and to deliver me from the fear of death and to give me a hope of life with God forever. That's grace. That's what Christmas is all about. And it can happen to you right now. I just want to ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes just for a moment. And just let this moment be between you and God. I understand it could be kind of embarrassing. It can kind of be offensive. It can strike at my pride. You know, I don't wanna think that I need to be saved, but I do, and so do you. If you've gone to church for a long time, it can kind of be embarrassing because you might think like, man, I wouldn't want anyone to know that I've been going to church all this time and I've never actually been saved. I've never actually asked Jesus to be the forgiver uh, as an act of grace in my life. I've never really gotten grace before. Well, it doesn't matter who knows. It doesn't matter how long you've been at church. I want to invite you to pray this prayer right now if you've never done this before. Jesus, I want to get off the ladder that I've been trying to climb, justifying my life through how good I am or my achievements or the kind of life that I've been living. And I confess to you my sin and that I cannot fix it. I now repent. I come to the cross and I receive Jesus' to be my forgiver and to be the leader of my life. And I ask to help you, to help me, God, and I want to start a new life. I want to walk with you as you help me to do life as long as I'm on this earth, and I want to live with you forever. Would you just tell God something like that right now in the privacy of your own heart? God, I just want to thank you for being a grace-giving, sin-forgiving, death-defeating God. And we thank you, we thank you especially for the, the gift of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, it can help to indicate that. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, I just want to ask you to tell someone about it. Tell someone today. All right, the last thing we're going to do uh, today is we're going to sing one more song. We're going to sing Silent Night, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And a tradition we have here at Blue Oaks with this song is you probably came with someone that you love, maybe a family member or a friend, and I'm just going to ask you to take some time during this song and tell them you love them or tell them you're glad you get to spend this Christmas with them. Uh, We don't want this season to go by without saying some of the things that uh, we really need to say. So take some time and do that and then join in and sing Silent Night with us. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.